Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Bowie, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering. What a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Hi, everyone. This is Elise Bowie with the Maximum Mom podcast. And today I am here with Michelle Browning Coglin. I mean, you all are in for such a special treat today. Thanks so much, Michelle, for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. And as we were talking about just before we got on, just getting here can be complicated, huh? Yes, can. <laughs> as we were saying, it's like people adding meetings to your schedule at the last minute and trying to navigate through children who need things and <laughs> life partners who need things. And you no, know, but we are we are just I said, that's our superpower. We can manage all that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I sometimes, though, have to remind myself and others. I mean, I don't consider women, you know, like better, smarter, whatever. I, it's this level of equality. But sometimes I think we fall trapped to not feeling equal when in fact we are very equal. And I love that you said that because I do think there's that trap of talking about women. It's that famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote of we put women on a pedestal that ends up being their cage. Right? Okay. As we, we classify and characterize women as these moms and incredible caregivers and women are so great at multitasking and women are this and women are that which, you know, some women maybe are, some are not, some men possibly are, but it's that notion that we have to live up to some expectation that is supposed to be a superpower. I think that does sometimes make us feel a little bit trapped. And similarly, when we feel, but at the flip of that is that because we do face so many hurdles and often feel like we're running into barriers and trying to just be on a playing equal playing field. Sometimes it's nice to have that sense of like, pat yourself. <laughs> like, Hey, listen, I'm really good at this or that. And I think it's often hard for women to give themselves that credit and to give themselves that space to say, I'm really good at something. So it's this weird sort of, it is sort of about that. And I get exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I always like to start this podcast sharing with our audience, I mean, who you are as a mom. I mean, I know you have your own children and you juggle your own family. Tell us a little bit about your family. Well, I'm mom to two teenagers. So I was just saying that they are about to start high school. So I'm going to have a freshman and a junior in high school. So new adventure ahead of us. Interestingly, that junior in high school was 10 months old when I started law school. Oh, wow. I was still beating her when I started law school, which is part of why, as we will probably talk about why I'm very interested and passionate about ensuring that there are appropriate accommodations for women, lawyers, or anyone who's lactating um, with the various things that we have to do in the law. Uh, and, and that freshman in high school, I'll tell you about pumping on breast or pumping on a, a, a very old sofa in a law library basement when we get to it. But <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, but then the, the soon to be freshman in high school is actually born on December 14th of my second year holiday break. And on the review, so I finished finals, had her seven days later, went back to school, I think 14. 15 days later and had to finish my law review article. So believe me, I have been parenting this whole lawyer journey, literally from law school on. It's been a, quite an adventure. Sounds like it. Yeah. I can't wait to get into those things. I mean, I had always kind of wondered what spurred on your, I mean, real dedication to the whole issue of lactation and how do attorneys navigate that? I mean, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, I know you've recently gone in-house, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, so I'll backtrack even a bit more before that. And because this also is is interesting to the story or integral to the story even is that before I went to law school, obviously I went to law school a bit older. So I was already a mother at the time. I had a prior career as a social worker for nearly 10 years. So I have a degree in social work and worked in programs that involved, in fact, I was the manager at a hospital of all the family and children's services, which included being over the lactation department, the childbirth department. I actually did programs in literacy, which will cross paths with something else we'll talk 
<laughs> I just find that, you know, especially the older you get, the more that you see that these weird paths in your life somehow seem to intersect and cross over at the most unusual way. So, but I was a social worker. I went to law school, did very well in law school and was hired by one of the largest firms in Louisville out of law school. So I went as an associate in a traditional um, big law firm. It's, it's, I think it would be still defined as a big law firm. Well, in fact, now it has merged and it is I think the largest firm in the world now, the firm that I first started with. Wow. Yeah. So it was not that large at the time that I was there, but still a large firm. I was at a couple of other large firms uh, during my law firm part of my career and only recently have decided to make that transition in-house. I'm now the general counsel for an advertising technology company still headquartered here in Louisville. That is awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about you starting Mother's Esquire. You did that earlier, 2013. Is that when you started? Yes, that's exactly right. In 2013, I was at that first firm out of law school. And I often tell people the story of that. First of all, I did not know I was going to be forming a national. (laughs) Um, That was not on my strategic plan at the time. There was no strategic plan. There was a oh my goodness, I'm really feeling like I have no idea how to juggle all these balls. What do I do? One of her moms who are lawyers, can we make a little, I'll be better. Well, that little group that I think I added five people to back in 2013 is now you know, approaching 7,000 people and is a full nonprofit. We are actively focusing on not only building community, I think we, I call it our three-legged sort of three-legged stool. So we are very focused on building community because part of what I was really concerned about in that moment for myself, knowing I should surely wasn't the only one, was that sense of not being able to do it all, that sense of feeling you're not a good enough mom and you're not a good enough lawyer and you're not a good enough this. And, and, and also that feeling of that tendency we had to internalize, you know, that it's our fault. Yep that full picture of what are some of the structural barriers? What are some of the systemic biases that are, in fact, in very strong part of gender bias that impact mothers? So, Absolutely. Yeah. So we, um, so, so sort of that three-legged stool is focused on building community. So building strong community of support, knowledge, you know, helping each other understand, being able to sort of reframe an issue that maybe you've internalized to sort of see the external piece of that. So building community. We are also focused on advocacy, which gets back to the breastfeeding and other kinds of advocacy work that we do. And another really important part of our mission is elevating women's voices. And so partnership with a national legal publication, uh, we try to sometimes nominate women for awards. We try to post about referral opportunities. We try to post about leadership positions and really encourage and support our members in that. To the extent that we can, we are an almost entirely volunteer organization and we're all busy moms and lawyers. And so we are, <laughs> we, our bandwidth is somewhat limited, but, but that's really where our mission of what we want to do because we want to see our vision is looking at a world that where this is no longer an issue where Absolutely. gender equity is not something that women any longer have to, to face. I have to say, I mean, we obviously I am older than you. So I took the bar in the first time I've taken three, but the first bar I took was in 1994 and I was pregnant with my first child during that bar exam. And it was fascinating because at the time, and that was in Louisiana, I practiced in New Orleans. I was not allowed to go to the bathroom. And Louisiana is an all essay exam. The whole three days is all essay. So there are these long, long blocks of time. And as a pregnant person, you can't go long, long blocks of time. It's actually somewhat dangerous, you know, in certain stages of your pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I had to have somebody come with me to the restroom the stall had to be open and I had to go to the bathroom with this lady every single time. And at the time I was saying this to somebody recently, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, of course that would be normal that they would assume I would cheat when I urinated, you know, like, of course, that's what pregnant women who want to be lawyers have to go through. I did not think anything of it. And, you know, in retrospect, obviously I've been pretty horrified by it. And yes. uh, it's been really interesting. And as someone, I mean, I had four biological children and I was pregnant or nursing, I mean, straight for nine years and trying to practice law, pregnant and nursing is a fascinating, 
adventure, especially, you know, in Louisiana. I mean, there was, you know, zero. I mean, there weren't even nursing rooms. I mean, I've had to nurse in more bathrooms than I care to admit, you know, pump in bathrooms. I mean, just the I mean, so we have come some way, you know, we have made some progress, which I think is wonderful. And when I look at somebody like you and what you're doing in this area of, you know, just gender equality, I mean, it just warms my heart in so many ways. And I just want to encourage you to keep going. And because obviously, though we have come a ways, I mean, we have a a big way to go. You know, there's a lot more work. Yeah, we do. And I, you know, first of all, hey, we are, again, we are really strong and incredible for when we think back about some of the things that we do. And think about when I think about this is number one, that I'm still fighting for the same exact thing that you're discussing. Right. And then we can back to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary or the, the movie, the movie that was made about her, where she stands up and says, when I started law school, there were no women, but we didn't even know that we should ask for one because we were just so stunned to be there. Completely. And yeah. I feel like, you know, I wish that we could say that as many improvements as have been made during those decades that we're still up against many of the same kinds of obstacles. So I will tell you that right now I get notice from women who are not provided any pregnancy accommodations for exactly what you're talking about, who are not provided any breastfeeding accommodations. The policies are completely unclear. I will get calls from women who are attending conferences that are put on by a bar association where they say, Michelle, I showed up at this conference. There's no place to pump. I have this picture that I keep on my desktop of a woman who sent me a picture of herself attending a women's bar conference. She's got her cute little high heel shoes and she, you can see her little pump and you can see her legs sitting on and you can see a toilet in the background because right. it's so emblematic to me of what women are still facing. And, and I, my story that I started with is so similar is that I pumped on a bat in a bathroom basement, law library basement on this old 1970s green plasticky couch. And didn't, I should even expect anything more. And again, I was just stunned to be there as a mother. And, you know, I, I feel like we have seen so many more women coming. I feel like so many more women are speaking out and that we have these wonderful podcasts like Maxima Mom. And there's just, there's so much good that's happening. And yet there's some of these problems that are so deeply entrenched that we, the move, needle's just not moving fast enough. At least it's, it's not, not for me. <laughs> it's not. Well, I think in fact, it's not moving fast enough. I mean, for me to have sent all of those children to college now, you know, and yet we're still dealing and talking about many of the very same issues. I mean, the firm I worked at when I initially had children, I mean, I went and clerked for a federal judge and stayed at that federal judge for two years and actually gave birth to two children there thinking that was easier than, you know, going back to my law firm. And I was the only female in the law firm. I mean, they didn't have a maternity policy at all, like nothing. And so, you know, when we talked about it, they were like, well, I don't know. What do you think? You know, a week, two weeks, what do you need off? And I was like, why don't you go ask your wife what she thinks I need off? And then let's talk about it. And because they just, you know, it was foreign to them. I mean, they all were hardworking male attorneys who had wives at home raising their families. Right. And that is truly, and that's something I think people tend to, tiptoe about around a little bit. And I I think we have to talk about that sometimes is that sometimes there is probably, I I don't have stats on this. I wish I did, but if we were to look across the the leadership positions, all sectors of legal, the judiciary to law for large law firms, to legal employers and law departments, if we were to look at that leadership and we were to pull some stats on that, I suspect we'd find a pretty large number, large percentage where they are male and they do have a partner of some sort at home doing right. court work. There is research that shows that in that situation, there are some unconscious biases that can go with that. It doesn't mean that every person has those biases right. as a whole, some biases come with that, that are, are very difficult to overcome. And that is a, a lack of awareness maybe not a bias, but a lack of awareness around what does this mean? Because they have shifted roles as far as who's responsible for caregiving. Right. I did it differently than you probably have if you are 
the person who's giving birth and is also in the workforce. So there's a lack of awareness. There are research studies that also support that there is a bias that can happen in that situation where there's this subtle belief system that a woman who's in the workforce who has children isn't a very good mom. Yep. What she ought to be doing. And it doesn't mean that they're consciously thinking this. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're all thinking this, but that that can be another barrier that gets raised for women. So it's just really hard. And the last thing I'll say is, I so wish that I could tell you right now that I haven't had five, six, 10 conversations with women in the past year about the fact that they're the first woman to ever give birth at their law firm and their law firm asked them, well, what do you think you need for a maternity policy? I wish that wasn't true. In 2021, that's still happening across the country. Yeah. And that's the part I think that's been so stunning to me is I do think legal has some issues with the speed at which they make changes. And I think we've seen that in other areas, you know, not just gender equality, but in how we have business models. I mean, all kinds of areas, I think, actually court rules, you know, whether we're able to pivot quickly and move to, you know, Zoom and at home work. I mean, legal struggled a lot with that. And I think that there's a lot that could be done to kind of put rockets under us to make us do some of these things faster. And I don't know if you've had any exposure to Eve Rodsky's whole book around fair play and the cards that she has developed. I mean, those are such an excellent resource. I think when female attorneys are talking to their partners at home and really looking at how do we divvy up the work? Because so much of it is divvied up with us women still delegating work rather than actually emotional labor divvying up ownership of work. And Eve's work is just, I think, fabulous in this area. And I think the more her work can get out in the world and help people understand how do you actually divvy up ownership? Because I think if a lot of law firm owners could understand some of those differences, they could understand a little better about what we are juggling in a typical week, month, year. I love that. I'm going to have to go and look that I've heard of that, but it's not one that I've read. And I will definitely look up and also share that with the community because I feel like that is, we are always hungering for resources that will help us things forward. There are a couple of books. Um, Tiffany Dofu uh, wrote, wrote Drop the Ball, which was also really good in this space. I also, this one's a little bit older, but I think most definitely stands the test of time. And that's Anne Marie Slaughter. Anne Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business. I think. Yeah. Excellent. I also often recommend Joanne Littman's. Um, that's what that's what she said. But oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That one is also very excellent. That one is not limited to law, although interestingly, the author Joanne's best friend was a lawyer and made the decision in that relation in their in that relationship. So Joanne was a journalist and she was married to I can't recall who she was married, what her spouse did, but they both made the decision to kind of stay in the workforce even if it meant some juggling, even if it meant making some concessions here or there, her best friend had gone to law school, was a practicing lawyer. And I can't remember if her spouse was a doctor or a lawyer, but also very, very busy, two very busy professionals right. made the decision for him to continue to work outside of the home and her to focus on working inside the home. And she sort of profiles what happens as then later the children are older and her best friend try to enter back into the workforce and how difficult that was not only getting your foot back in the door, which can often be difficult, but emotionally what that's like to be 20 years older than your cohort totally treated as if you are still at that level, or sometimes even just, we are so hard on ourselves as lawyers and so perfectionistic often that being put in that position where you feel like you are behind or struggling can be a very ego check for us. Oh, I mean, it was huge. I mean, I actually did that. I stayed home with all my children for a decade and then needed to go back to work because I was actually divorcing and trying to get back into the workforce was wildly fascinating to me because every employer I met was like, Elise, you don't want to do this job. Like you don't want to be an associate. I mean, you clerked for a federal judge. You worked in this big law firm. Like, no, you shouldn't be going backwards. And I'm like, well, great. Then hire me forwards. And obviously that wasn't an option, you know, and it was literally this just constant 
refrain about you're overqualified. How will you handle it if you have a supervisor who's 10 years your junior? And I'm like, I would handle it just like if I had a supervisor 10 years my senior. But it was a very interesting dynamic. And it was very eye-opening to see how it is to get back in the workforce after stepping away for what I thought was you know, the right thing to do. The same thing, let my husband's career move forward. And in retrospect, it actually was the worst move financially ever. I mean, he was not able to kind of carry that on. And yet I probably could have, like we probably should have switched roles. And, but I mean, we didn't even discuss that as an option, you know, so. I mean, even having that discussion today is still a difficult discussion. So take it back. Our children were younger. That's a, that's a couple of, I guess, two, a couple of decades ago. Is that right? Right. That young age. And it's even hard to discuss what 1980 something women still couldn't go out and open up a bank account or a credit card without their husband signing off and not all states. I mean, we think like, I think people tend to think that we are so far ahead of, of what we actually are and not realizing like that was in 19. I remember that with my mom. My mom was a business. Right. I'm, I'm from the country. She was married to a farmer. My mom was the one who could, you know, just do numbers that you would, wouldn't believe. In. And yet the bank would re- required her husband, to, uh, who, you know, who cared and wanted her to do well, but also was as capable as she was with that kind of thing, had, you know, had him come in and sign off on with her. So just, it's very interesting when we, when we look at this in the context of time, how much we still do have to go, but I'm so glad that you shared your story of that, because I will, I do sometimes also tell that not only was one of the things that really inspired me to start Mother's Esquire, my own feeling of, of just wanting to the people that I could talk to who would really feel like feel the same kinds of challenges that I was feeling. We had an experience where I sat in a room where some people were discussing some men, frankly, were discussing a woman who had taken some time off of work. And if I could tell you the whole story, I would, because it's even more frustrating when I, if I could give you all the details, but just suffice it to say that this person had been a practicing lawyer for a number of years, took some time off to practice law I put a resume in and I heard some people, men discussing her and they called her irrelevant, irrelevant. And I think it had been four or five years and that she had been off. And, and I, it burned such a hole in me yep. conversation happening that I thought I am never going to sit in a room where I hear somebody saying that and where I feel I have no power to do anything about it. So, and because I feel that there are so many reasons why women do end up taking time off and it has so much to do with this, you know, disproportionate balancing of what you said about who does still does the vast majority of caregiving work in this country, not only inside the home, but frankly, we do caregiving roles inside this. My goodness, them at school, we do them in our, in our churches or other spiritual gathering places and in our community. So the, the whole notion of unpaid labor and how all of that layers on to gender inequity and especially motherhood penalty inside the legal profession are issues we just have to keep coming back to over and over again. So I'm absolutely thankful well, you shared your story. Yeah. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, just the simplest things, having conversations with people in a non, with men in a non-threatening, non-accusatory way you know, but really helping them to understand some of these issues. And I mean, it's sometimes as simple as soccer. Like you'll hear some dad be like, oh, you know, I take my kids to soccer, you know, for their practices. And I mean, absolutely kudos to him. Like that's great, super helpful. But when you think of soccer, many of us who have, you know, planned extracurricular activities know that taking the child to soccer practice is probably one tenth of the soccer activities. You know, there's the the email list. There's the buying the coach's gift, getting the equipment, finding out if your child wants to do soccer, having those emotional conversations with your children who are scared, you know, the first time they're going. Putting the the knee pad, I mean, putting the games and the practices on the calendar, reminding somebody to make sure they're there to pick up or drop off or or scheduling carpool. (laughs) Jinx. I mean, making friends with the other parents who will pick up your child when you're stuck in trial. I mean, you know, the thing, the lists go on and on. And that's why the fair play model and the fair play idea is so powerful because it truly goes through that and helps people 
to truly understand all the pieces that level up to driving your child to soccer practice. It's that is such the perfect example. It just because it does seem like it's like this thing that's like, oh, I've got it. I'm driving to the practice and I'm bringing home from practice. <laughs> Mom in the background has reminded him of the practice, packed all the stuff, packed the snacks for the team, um, put everything in the car, did, you know, and prepared the child for this. And, you know, and it's like there's so much that goes into it. I, I also think about that, like with the grocery store, such another big. <laughs> Back in the grocery store, and you realize that back at home, and of course, this is not the case for everyone. But in many cases, it's meant that she also made the grocery list, and she also, you know, and or she got seven calls while she was there, while he was there to get the, you know. And I just think it's um, it's really important to dig into those discussions and understand that that there's a lot more that goes into those activities than maybe is on the surface, and that it does still disproportionately often, often, and certainly not always, but often land on women's shoulders. It does. And I mean, one thing that I find interesting, I mean, and I'm a kind of a tough parent, I must put that out there. I mean, I'm definitely a natural consequence kind of parent. And I found that too, even in my relationship with my husband, my current husband, you know, when there's all those questions, sometimes it's like, you know, I trust you to figure it out and you, you just decide, and I don't want to be a part of that. You know, like you're handling this. And I mean, I currently am married to somebody who is just kind of amazing and owning things, but it is, we women have to do a little better, I think, at letting our partners thrive and shine. You know, yes. I mean, this is not a one way street. I think that's why Tiffany, Tiffany Dofu's book is so really good is that it's about some of this is on the way that we socialize boys and men. Some of this is around, I think, community and family expectations about what it defines a mom versus what defines a good dad. I think we have lots and lots of policies in place, both from true like legal policies to just sort of general policies that over and over again, mom is the primary parent and dad is often the primary breadwinner, even when that isn't actually the case. <laughs> right. I think there's so much of that, but I also think there is a piece of it where I think it ties back to that expectation around moms and what it means to be a good mom is that I often say my husband could not show up for a doctor's appointment or a school conference and people would make the assumption that what? What would they make the assumption? He's working, right? If I don't share a conference, and perhaps some of this is me thinking this internally and that it's not accurate, but I have to check that expectation in myself because I feel like if I don't show up and he shows up, that I'm going to be subtly judged as being a bad mom. Completely. Right? And I feel like some of that is probably a little bit true. And some of it may also be that it's inside of me, but it's that sense of like, everything has to be, done right and perfectly or the certain way or else the judgment's going to come back on you as the mother. Nobody's going to judge the dad. Like I definitely struggle with that myself. And I think that is such a powerful conversation. I mean, we women, I think have to let go of that. You know what I mean? Like we are our harshest critics. I mean, I think women judge other women very harshly at times. And I would love us to have more conversations around that so that we can really flip that, you know, thought where we are being judged, because I think all of us feel that. I mean, I know one time I literally the very first time I was going to miss a parent teacher conference, my oldest was a sophomore in high school. So, I mean, you know, you do the math. I had done many parent teacher conferences, you know, solo and some with my ex, but you know, had gone to all of them. So I'm missing this one. I asked my ex at the time if he could attend it. Well, it was fascinating because his idea of attending a parent teacher conference was he emailed my daughter and asked for a paragraph explanation of how she was doing in every class, what problems she had and what support she needed. You know, like he wanted this entire rendition of the whole thing. And she was like, dad, that's not how parent teacher conferences roll. Like, <laughs> we do not do that. You know, mom just goes and she wings it and it's all good. Yeah. And you know, it was fascinating though. It I thought, fascinating. okay, we're going to have to teach you know, how to go to a parent teacher conference in a more chill manner so that the children aren't traumatized by the conference. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Guild is an insanely productive community of lawyer entrepreneurs with a growth mindset who share their collective genius and hold each other accountable to take their careers and businesses to the next level. But in 2021, we are upping the game. In addition to exclusive access to the group, FaceTime with the two of us, discounted pricing for live events, and front seat exposure to live recording and podcasts and video, we are mapping out for members the exact growth playbook with our new program, Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships and experience content specifically designed to complement your plan for growth. For a limited time only, the Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time program will be offered for free to all new Guild members. Join us by going to maxlawguild.com. I mean, the stories are just are really are interesting, but kind of on that same note too, you know, especially I think mothers of younger children too, we, we do, we worry, we put stress on ourselves. Oh, and, yeah. And moms are super laid back and hands off and whatever, but I think a lot of us are very worried and really that sense of like wanting to step in and tell dad how to do things correctly instead of right. letting figure out. And I think, again, some of that socialized into us. Here's the other thing that goes back to policy, though, that I really want to bring out here, and that is we create policies as employers, as court systems that reinforce this notion over and over again. So we, two of the things that we advocate for are gender neutral childbirth or child adoption leave so that we're still struggling as a country to even have maternity leave, which, you know, we, we can acknowledge has a little bit more of a medical necessity behind it. Right message that we send by having only maternity leave is that moms are still the primary caregiver and dad should still be at work, working and making that money. And we totally the importance of dads as caregivers. So okay. you're not offended about it on behalf of women, be offended about it on behalf of men who are just completely not acknowledged as in their important and critical role as fathers. So absolutely. I mean, and as a law firm owner, I mean, I gave paternity leave twice to my male associate and it was fascinating. People were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm honoring the fact that he needs to be at home caring for his baby and bonding with this child. And I was like, we're a family law firm. Like, let's be serious. How do we not acknowledge the import of a dad's relationship from birth with this child? I mean, it it can revolutionize the child's psychological development. I mean, it's it, it can. And there's such good research about what a dad feeling empowered in those totally. weeks of life, what that does to their relationship forever. forever. So I, you were so insightful to be granting that at a time. And, you know, I mean, still, still society wise, that is not something that is, is all that typical. And in a related note, too, because I think you will really appreciate this, given that you spent a, you have spent a lot of your career in court, and that is parental continuance role. Oh, so uh, you may have seen I, I was with part of a team that advocated in Florida before the Supreme Court to change that rule. We are trying to advocate for there to be a presumption that parental continuance rule, potential parental continuance leave should be granted in court cases, gender neutral, gender neutral. So whether totally. you're non-binary or whatever your status is, is that that should be granted to you so that you can take that time that's needed. Because as of now, across the nation, in most states still don't have that set up. It is truly a hit or miss, depends on the judge, depends on opposing counsel. But in cases that there are exceptions to this, of course, where, you know, um, guardian guardianship cases, sometimes criminal cases, sometimes there are issues where it really may not be able to wait. But in many cases where it can, I mean, like if they can give somebody to leave because they're going on a vacation to go watch football somewhere, they can certainly grant it for some be able to have a baby or adopt a baby. And, um, and so that is something we're really advocating for. But I think like there are policies that just so reinforce these roles that we have to completely keep working on. I think we all have had that experience with a court, even when it's not related to a birth or an adoption where, you know, there's some major medical thing going on or somebody in your family has had some major medical thing. And we've all seen those attorneys struggling to get a continuance, you know, when a, a child is in the hospital or somebody, you know, your ex has had a heart attack. And so now, you know, your whole schedule is changed. And the thought that we have trouble with these basic 
things in getting a continuance, I'm always fairly stunned by it, but I see it a lot. And I mean, I think in general, we could do a lot policy-wise to help courts come up with policies that make more human sense, where we as lawyers do not feel like we are having to choose between our roles as whatever, parents, spouses, you know, sisters, daughters, whatever they are, and doing our job professionally. I mean, if I have a, a father who's you know, had a heart attack and is in ICU, I should be able to go see that person, I think, with complete psychological freedom, knowing that my case will be continued and I will handle it when I return. And yeah. to have anything less than that, I think is absurd. And I think what you're talking about, too, is just that beyond these specific issues that we're talking about and beyond um, gender equity, even there. And and let me say there are some really there is a really good study that I, I wish I could tell you the name of it off the top of my head, but I can send it to you. It is looking at these issues, not in the context of gender inequity, right. but looking at them in the context of the legal profession as a profession of just chronic overwork. Right. To acknowledge just general issues of humanity yep. on the notion of it being very gender specific. Right. Yeah. So I think that we have a lot, to, a lot of work that we could do. I yeah. think we move towards a profession that is more about people's lives in general. Right. That that will also resolve some of these gender inequity and motherhood penalty issues that we are talking about today. I mean, really the things that happened, I, mean, I, in the last couple of years, had a situation where my ex had a heart attack. I was supposed to be in a deposition. I call the attorney and I say, my ex-husband has had a heart attack. I need to bring my son to the hospital to see his father. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Like, I didn't see anything crazy about this request. And he was like, I'm going to the judge, you know, and I'm going to, you know, compel you. And I was like, are you kidding I'm like, what are we talking about? And then he's like, I don't believe you. And I was like, based on what, <laughs> you know, where? And I'm like, we're both officers of the court. Obviously, I'm not lying to you. And so literally, I have to go to the hospital. You know, I bring my son. I have to take a picture showing that I'm in the hospital with my ex-husband's name. I had to ask my ex-husband. I'm like, this is obviously a total violation of your privacy because he insisted on going to the court with this. And I was just like, to me, the court shouldn't even, you know, entertain something like this. This is just absurd. And, and it's, it's just heartbreaking, too, for me to hear those kinds of stories. And I, I you know, I just posted a comment on a LinkedIn. Uh, there was a LinkedIn post that caught my attention about something very similar. Now, it wasn't it wasn't even nearly as tragic of a circumstance, but it was talking about a woman who had had a, a, an issue with her car. Like she'd had a, she had a car accident, I think, and her car was... Oh. I saw this. Did yeah. you happen to see this? Well, yeah. my comment to that post was, I wish that if only you knew how many women are denied continuances around a request for childbirth or childcare issues. And I said, furthermore, because he, he mentioned that she actually sent him a photo of the app. He did. Yeah. To confirm, so they can just say how she's so sorry. And, you know, I think and I, my comment was that women are so conditioned around the prove it again bias of that when we have to prove ourselves over and over again. So it doesn't matter how many successes we've had, how many things that we've done, we've done 100% perfectly well. The chance that one thing might be viewed against us can be such a, a, a huge problem for us that, you know, whereas the, the opposite tends to be true with men is that they're viewed as being successful despite something right. happening. Yes, successful until some until we prove that we're not successful. Right. What I'm saying are like successful until we make a mistake and then no longer does any of that prior success matter. Absolutely. I mean, I feel very strongly that very few women would have the response of, oh, you're lying or, oh, I'm going to do this. You know, we would be like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you're going right. through this. I hope you're okay. Situation. Right. And good luck and check back with me later and we'll reschedule. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, well, that it makes me want to move into, I want to just be sure to talk about your book, the My Mom, the Lawyer. I mean, I want to hear about why you wrote it and you know how it's being used in the world because I think it was amazing. Oh, <laughs> I, thank you. 
I really, it was again, almost a happy accident, a little bit like mother. <laughs> I'm going to show it. I'm just going to show it up here on my screen for anybody who's watching the podcast. It's a little children's book. I actually did all the little graphics myself using Ooh. computer program because truly my plan of action with it was just to say, like, I want to write a little book that we kind of pass around in the Mother's Esquire member community right. to celebrate moms as lawyers. And I had, a, as it kind of came into being, I did have a few goals in mind. And those included showing moms in lots of different roles. Right. Mom in there who's breastfeeding at her law office. She owns her own law firm and she's at her desk and she's breastfeeding. There's a mom who is works in a company. There's a mom who's a judge. There's a mom who's a law professor. So I really wanted children of lawyers to get a full sense of like all the different kinds of lawyers. I was so, I so wanted any child, any family that read this book to see a story or a picture that made them think of themselves. So there's a, there's a mom and a child. The child is in her wheelchair and they're going to law school that day. Celebrate together. There's a mom in her hijab and they're reading a book together. I just wanted to make sure that there was a lot of representation in that book so that every child would find themselves in this book, find their mom in this book. You know, I just wanted it to be like that for them. And I think the last thing I'd say as far as like, what was I trying to convey with it is I think we do hear a lot of stories and lawyer jokes and things like that, but don't always put lawyers in the best light. And if you're a lawyer and you hear lawyer jokes or you see people on TV that are who aren't behaving very nicely, like I think as a child, you could take that and think like negative things about like, why is my mom a lawyer when lawyers are, and I really wanted to portray lawyers in all the ways that they help and all the ways that we are community helpers and we are problem solvers. And there's a vignette in, in one of the stories about a mom who she helps children who are getting adopted and, you know, just wanted to really show, I get kind of get goosebumps when I think just wanted more, I wanted children to be so proud of their moms and so proud of the work that they do. And so that was really what I was trying to convey. And I, somebody asked me like, but why a children's book? Why of everything you could have done a children's book? And I had to think about it for a little while. And I realized that in that first job, when my children were still really little, my drop dead will not miss, even on the longest days of the law, was bedtime. Yep. I would not miss bedtime. And I would read stories at bedtime. And that was so important to me. And that special time of us sitting in the rocking chair together in their bedroom, reading them stories was so important that I think that that was, that just called to me. In addition to going back to when I was a social worker, because I'd been very involved in encouraging children literacy and I happened to be married to a school teacher. So, you know, our lives are so fascinating and how they like twist and turn. And then somehow these things like intersect at a point that you would have never expected and, and something kind of fun and cool comes out of it. So I'm, I'm really proud of the the book and, and hope that it will give, a, and I've gotten so many sweet stories back from people about how they were reading with their kids and literally getting choked up or, or kids saying, Hey mommy, look, it's like us. It's just like us. Right. Makes me feel like I did something that was really meaningful to other moms and families out there. And that makes me super happy. Oh, I think it was just critical to the dialogue too, about helping children understand what the these moms are doing because you know there's not a lot out there when you go to school and you tell your classmates my mom's a lawyer i mean you know it's becoming more and more but i mean i know when mine were little i mean my kids got all kinds of weird comments and questions and thus i would get those you know when they would come home they'd ask me all kinds of things about why was I a lawyer, you know, and most moms aren't lawyers or, you know, and so I thought your book was just, I thought it was brilliant on so many levels. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm really, I'm so glad it's out there. Like I said, it wasn't supposed to become a published book and a local publisher picked us up and it's now out there. It's on Amazon. It's on the publisher's website. It's on the Mother's Esquire website. And and I want to make it clear too, every single penny of that book has, has, from the beginning, gone back to Mother's Esquire. I have not seen one penny from that book. It all goes back to Mother's Esquire to help support our advocacy work and our mission. So it is a truly a labor of love that I wanted to give back to them and to put out in the world. And it's been really, it's been very joyful to have, have that out there. Absolutely. Well, what is some of your best, if you can think of some of your best mom lawyer advice, you know, you want to give our listeners, what would you say to our listeners? 
Gosh, what a great question. And there's so much advice we would give, right? We could give it all. I think we've really covered some really important things today. And I think that is really evaluate some of those messages and those stories that you're telling yourself. Like what narrative are you buying into? So are you telling yourself that you're a bad mother? Are you internalizing this story? Or are you looking at, let's talk about some objective facts. Like what would you tell your best friend if your best friend came to you and told you the story that you're telling yourself? Right. Most you would not say, yes, you are failing as a mother. They, you would never say that to them. So talk to yourself and treat yourself with at least as much kindness as you would treat your best friend going through something similar. Oh, I think that is, I mean, such important advice. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a little woo woo, I must admit. And I mean, I'm one of those people that walks around and really eavesdrops on my own thoughts. And I do a lot of thought work, you know, when I'm telling myself something negative and I call out the mean girl in my head is named Eloise. So when Eloise is talking ugly, I ask myself, well, is that true? You know, and really, really probe into what is that thought? You know, is it factually true? And if it is not factually true, I'm like, well, then obviously we're going to get rid of this thought because this is silly. Why would I sit around and believe something that is not factually true? And so it's been very powerful to learn to eavesdrop on my own thoughts and naming my mean girl was really helpful too, because then I can. I, I love that. I love that so much. That is such a good example of, um, so I said I was a social worker. Uh, narrative therapy was one of my favorite forms of therapy. And in narrative therapy, you, it's generally, it's often used with children. And I was mostly focused on children as a social worker. Most of my work was with children. So, you know, it's like telling, it's giving a name and a story to these things that are worrying you, upsetting you, concerning right. you. Things. So giving a name to a, to a negative thought, giving a place where you can externalize that, look at it, examine it, talk about it, think about it in a more logical sense, rather than letting it sit inside your body is such great advice. And it's totally based in narrative therapy. And it's, it's a really great thing to do. Um, and I, you know, I think along that same line, so whatever, however for you, because sometimes when I'm really getting hard on myself, I'll also envision myself as, my, as a little child. And I've always been very motherly. I had five younger brothers and sisters. Oh, wow. Always wanted to, you know, I've always been very motherly. And so I will sometimes envision myself. My Eloise will sometimes be, instead of it being Eloise, it'll be me as a little kid thinking these, telling myself these negative things. And I will give myself the same kind of love and support that I would give my own children. And you know, think like walk through these thoughts like I would right. with children. And, you know, if we would give ourselves the love and support and kindness that we would give our own children or to our best friends, you know, I mean, really, what a difference that makes. Oh my gosh, the world. I mean, that gives me goosebumps. Imagine the world if all mothers treated themselves as well as they treat their children. Yeah. I mean, that is powerful. Well, I really, I do wish that for, for all the moms here is to really take that moment to really examine those thoughts. Like you said, really stop and ease up on your own conversations. I think all of the book resources that we've talked about today are great guides. Yes, like yeah. something to sort of check through and a list to follow. And um, I think being part of community, obviously that was something that we cared a lot about as when we created, when I created a mother's Esquire, even though I didn't know what I was really <laughs> <laughs> like, I think obviously I had a gut sense that community really matters for us. We've all experienced what it's like to be really disconnected from community over the past year and a half. Um, so I think it's really quite palpable how important community is to us, right? But finding that community of support can, can be a really empowering thing. And I think lastly, not being afraid to step out into those leadership roles. Because, you know, I read a story, I think Sheryl Sandberg actually talks about how she felt, uh, and I will say I have some challenges with the lean-in concept, even though I think there was a lot of good in there. I feel like one of my key philosophies for women is please stop telling us how to climb the brick wall ahead of us and let's start. <laughs> like I can lean in as far as I can, but when there's a brick wall in front of me, I'm not going to get through it. I can't. I'm leaning. And again, no disrespect to Cheryl. I think she had all the best intentions, really. Right. Like she meant very well in that. I get that. But I remember one of the stories in that book was her talking about being very, very pregnant and having to park like 10 miles away in the parking lot. Yep. But was in a position of leadership, she had the ability to really truly have a voice to advocate for not only her own situation, but seeing that situation and advocating for others. 
So I think give yourself that permission and give yourself that confidence as mom leaders to step into positions where you can use your voice to advocate for others, because that is so empowering for you as well. So those would be, I guess, the off the cuff pieces of advice. Well, and I think those are just so important. And interestingly, I saw a post this morning and I don't remember in what group it was in, but somebody was going to a job interview and they were discussing like what to ask for, for a salary. And, you know, often I, I am being accused of being very blunt, like just saying what I think without all these niceties in advance. And I was like, well, why don't you just ask for what you need and want? (laughs) You know, like just be honest. And it is so interesting. I think how we as women really feel like we have to wrap everything in niceties, you know, Mm -hmm. before we can just use our voice and advocate for what we need, what we want and what other women need and want. And I just, I really want to encourage people to stand in their voice and just advocate for themselves. Because I I think a lot of times we just, we create this feeling of what we have to do to fit in and to make it all packaged with a bow. And I mean, I don't mean to be totally rude, but F the bow, like we need to just say what we need and want many times. And I think we'd be surprised. I think there are many, many employers who would embrace that. And I sometimes think that, you know, we just might want to try for a year just being radically (laughs) candid in all our communication and just see how it goes. Yeah, I think you're so right. I'll never forget the most telling story where I was sitting with a partner of a law firm and he called his assistant to ask for a file. And he picked up the, well, let me start with mine. If I would have called my assistant, I would have said, hey, it's Michelle. Do you mind to see if you can find such and such file in a minute? Would you mind to please bring that over to my desk? Listen, if you can't get to it right now, don't worry, but just just whenever you can. So just let me know. So I have this like 27 minute conversation when I'm just asking for something. And I sat in his office and I pick up the phone and say, hey, hey, do you have that file? Bring that over to my office. Click. That was it. And I thought, my goodness, the way that we communicate so different. So different. Like, how do we, how do we step out of that? And I I like the idea, like what would happen if we radically just changed that for a year? Like what kind of movement forward might we see? Right. And there's such a happy medium between those two. You know what I mean? I think to myself, like, I almost wish he would like learn from me and I would learn from him. Totally. Absolutely. Cause I mean, I could see a beautiful world where you could pick up the phone and call and say, Hey, I know you're super busy. I misplaced this file. I'm in a meeting. I really need you to grab it real quick. I appreciate your attention to that. And just, you know, that be it. And you've, you know, kind of been respectful. You've acknowledged the busyness about what they're doing. And, but at the same time, you might need the file right away to get what you need done. Right. And there's there's a meeting in the middle moment because I did feel like it was, it was just very stark to me to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Michelle, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate being able to talk to you and learn from you and share what you are doing with the rest of the Maximum Lawyer community. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, the feeling is completely mutual. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, well, I hope you enjoy a wonderful rest of your day with no added appointments. (laughs) Let's hope so. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom Podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.